0: designed to encourage, empower, and educate real estate professionals by sharing best practices from business leaders that are proven winners. I'm your host, Kyle Malnati, and this is Calibrate Real Estate. Broadcasting from Vail, Colorado in the Rocky Mountains. Thank you for tuning in to the Calibrate Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Malnati. And uh, for those of you who subscribe to the podcast on a regular basis, you know, we typically broadcast in Denver, Colorado. I'm on a week-long vacation with my family here in Vail. And Vail's got such a special place in my heart. Both Courtney and I have been coming here for almost 20 years together. And then my family started coming to Vail uh, long before I met Courtney when I was a kid. And it's interesting when you travel somewhere, that you visit often, but don't live there, things change and uh, you have new memories that get created in a town like Vail. It might be some other vacation destination that you go to on a regular basis. And what I've found is that I come to Vail pretty much every year now, and I come with a different version of me. It's an older version of me, uh, but also wiser, and uh, a little bit uh, more learned, more experienced. And so I just, uh, I reflect back on all of my vacations, all of my time here, uh, the things that I've enjoyed. And, and this week has been phenomenal. Going to an Independence Day parade, uh, seeing all the patriotism people coming out in droves. It's been wonderful. I hope that you've taken some vacation as we're starting July. We're at the midpoint of the year, and it's a great time to remind ourselves to rest. It's halftime, if you will, if you're going to use a sports analogy. And when we rest, we often reflect. And you reflect on what you accomplished over the past six months. We're at the halfway point of the year, and uh, have you accomplished what you wanted to accomplish? Are you at that midway point from a production standpoint or for some of your goals. And if not, you know what, now's the time to double down and make sure that you can make those goals happen in your life. Well, Vail again, is a very special place for me. Um, I get to play in a lacrosse tournament. That's a lot of fun. My kiddos and I uh, with Courtney, we, we love to walk through the town of Vail and go shopping and it's just gorgeous scenery. So we are very excited to share this next episode of our podcast with you. Before I do, I'd love to read one of our recent reviews. This is just something that makes me feel so happy. And the review goes as follows. The Calibrate Real Estate Podcast is by far my favorite podcast. I recommend it to many. It's easy to listen and even easier to be captured by so much great content. I find myself listening over and over. I look forward to each episode. Thanks for the awesome content, Kyle. And uh, that was someone that uh, chose to remain uh, anonymous. But regardless, we just love reviews like that. We've got um, a great place you can review the podcast on Apple iTunes. That's uh, our preferred way of of getting a a five-star review. And if you want to drop a note like that, we will absolutely read it on air. Uh, Thank you so much for whoever it was that put that amazing Um, podcast review. They just called themselves loved it. (laughs) Well, this next episode is a great opportunity to listen to someone who is uh, becoming very famous in the real estate industry. Ivan Estrada was one of our previous guests. He was on episode 13, which was titled Life of a Celebrity Realtor. And Ivan lives in LA, uh, but he was not born into a family of wealth and affluence. Ivan grew his career and you'll hear more about uh, Ivan in this next episode of the Calibrate Real Estate Podcast. Ivan's gonna be introduced by our MC for our real estate conference that we had a little while ago, which is Amy Campbell. Amy was the guest on our last two podcast episodes and we are just so thrilled to share this great content with you. So for my friend, Ivan Estrada and our MC, Amy Campbell, We will see you around the neighborhood. Thanks everybody. Enjoy your Independence Day holiday.
1: You may recognize him from Bravo's million-dollar listing, HGTV's House Hunters, or NBC's Open House. Ivan Estrada was a 30 under 30 honoree in 2014 and runs Ivan Estrada Properties at Douglas Elliman Luxury in Beverly Hills. He specializes in working with celebrity entertainers and athletes, and in 2017, he closed 32 sides for $50 million, not a bad average price, right? The most expensive single transaction that he's ever closed was $29 million, single transaction, so pretty cool. Part of his business involves traveling around the globe to meet and network with clients, and traveling to places where wealth is prevalent. So last year, Ivan was a speaker at three Inman Connect conferences and was named a top real estate influence, influencer by Inman. He's also a licensed CPA, so if anyone missed tax day yesterday, <laughs> call Ivan. <laughs> no, don't do that. Don't call Ivan about your taxes. But uh, Ivan is going to be interviewed by, by our event host, Kyle Malnaddy. Malnaddy, right? Not Malnaddy. And Kyle was a 30 under 30 honoree in 2012. He's going to be giving a presentation later, so I'll introduce him more in depth at that time. But right now it is my pleasure to welcome Ivan Estrada and Kyle Menati.
2: Okay, everybody. Ooh, we get to sit. Yeah, we got the nice uh, little fireside chat here. A Couple of guys with stripy socks and fun, ties. Fun socks? All right, so Ivan Estrada and I joined um, a conversation on our Calibrate Real Estate podcast couple of episodes ago and we felt like it would be great to dive deeper into this. Um, we just, Amy just mentioned it, tax time, that's one of the bigger stressors for realtors either because they're not planning correctly or they've not allocated the correct amount of funds. And so Ivan has this really interesting um, ability to dive deep with people from an accounting standpoint. Not a lot of us have that same type of background. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit. The other reason why we, uh, titled this, this talk, Working With Wealth, is it's not working with riches. It's not get rich quick. It's working with people that have created substantial wealth. And I think that that takes a, a different level of expertise. So, Ivan, this is, uh, is going to be a fun conversation. I'm All right. So, first question. You shared with me on our podcast that you grew up in Beverly Hills. No, you or did you not. didn't grow up in Beverly Hills. I'm sorry. And you didn't grow up with wealth. Um, so, how did you develop the confidence to work with affluent clients that are wealthy, not having kind of been there, done that before.
3: Lots of therapy. <laughs> totally kidding. So I went to USC for undergrad for accounting and finance, and I grew up very middle class to, to immigrant parents. And so I remember the first day of class, conversations among the new students, about going to Aspen for the weekend and the private jet and the yachts and, the, and these homes that I just kind of, I, I couldn't relate to that because I had never been exposed to, to anything like that. Um, and so it took some time. I think it was me more resisting getting to know them because I felt like there was no middle ground. I, I felt they're not gonna wanna hang out with me. My parents aren't rich. They don't have homes all over the globe. Why would they wanna be my friend? And I think it was more of a limitation that I was putting on myself And on the other side, on their viewpoint towards me was they thought I didn't want to hang out with them. So I think it was more of like a mental switch that I had to to make early on in college to find a middle ground that these are just people. We're all seeking the same thing in life. It's just they have a little bit more money than you do. And so I think that was my first kind of making me feel feel comfortable with working with people or being around people with wealth because it was very intimidating. And it was, well, I don't have that and my parents don't drive that. And so it took a while. And even now in real estate, in Beverly Hills, in Malibu, in Bel Air, they're very tight-knit communities. Um, And it takes a while to really get into those communities because they just want people that they can trust. I think that's something that not just people with wealth, but any of our clients, they just want someone that they can rely on and trust. And I think after many, many years of just kind of, I just became kind of, what's that word that I'm looking for? I was not It wasn't something that was daunting to me anymore. I can work with someone who is buying a, a million dollar home or let's say 150 as an example. Um, I, I'd probably treat them the same and I wouldn't feel insecure whatsoever.
2: That's cool. And I think overcoming that mental objection, which is, it sounds like huge. really that is, is that it's just, you've made it up in your mind. And all of a sudden, I think also once you've built on one success, that starts to just elevate your confidence. Right. And I think that after you have that person that believes in you, and we've all had that person in our career that yeah. gave us a shot when maybe we didn't deserve it. And I think that that really, really helps a lot. Yeah. So that confidence, I think, is is real difficult to manufacture, and it almost feels like there's got to be someone that steps into your life that says, yeah. you know what, I, I believe in you, and you're going to hustle for me, you're going to work hard, and, uh, and and smile while you're kind of working on my behalf. I think that that's, that's really the important thing.
3: And it's a like, negative story I kept telling myself. They're not going to want to work with me because I wasn't raised in Beverly Hills. They're not going to want to be my friend because you know my dad doesn't drive a Rolls Royce and has a private yacht. It was all these negative kind of... Feelings that I was giving myself that was kind of putting up that wall between myself and the client. And I think like now it's just, you know, you just forget about that and just kind of we're all on the same playing field.
2: So, real practical, let's get real tactical. And this is a little bit off script, but what we talked about in our podcast is that you've got a very uh, detailed and regimented meditative practice in the morning that helps you get through that. So, just for, for those that don't meditate, or maybe if you've got kind of a prayer walk or a faith walk, what, what, is the, what, are, what are the things that you do to set your mind right in the morning so that you can get outside of that negative space in your head?
3: So every morning, I usually wake up around like 4.30, 5 in the morning, and there's the chair that I use all the time. It's in my living room, and I just sit there. I wake up, and that's the first thing that I do. I go to the chair and sit down for 25 minutes. And it took a really long time for me to, to even try to meditate because we have so much stuff going on in our head. I mean, you know, work and life and this and that. And it took a lot of practice for me to really dive into the meditation. There was a conference that I went to in Los Angeles called The Summit. And they usually have it at The Summit out at Sea in Florida. And the ongoing theme from doctors to Kobe Bryant was there, Jessica Alba talking about The Honest Company, Elon Musk was there. It was, everyone kept mentioning, you have to meditate. You have to meditate. And so I've been doing it probably on a daily basis since September. And I honestly feel I don't get stressed out like I used to. I feel very more appreciative of everything that I've done for my life. And kind of, you kind of you're kind of able to see yourself and kind of step back a little bit and, and kind of feel a sense of gratitude. And for me, that's been huge. Like I feel like as soon as I walk out of the door, I feel like I have a laser pointer in, in, in my forehead kind of aiming at exactly what I need to get done. And before the meditation, I was always just scrambling all over the place.
2: All right, so for the novice or the skeptic, either one, we'll play to both of them. I'm picturing, you know, like a little gong no. and some incense and maybe some, you know, Sounds some fun. kind of music. So what, <laughs> what do you do? I mean, you sit there. I just you literally just talk just, to yourself? Like, what I do, what sit
3: are you doing? there um, and just put my hands on my lap, close my eyes, and all I do is just breathe. Breathe in, breathe out, and just listen to my breath. There's, like, there's Headspace, which you can download online, which is super easy, and it's guided meditation. But I just literally just start breathing, and all of a sudden, like, everything just goes black. And I actually feel like I'm levitating now, which is kind of cool. And as soon as I'm, I'm done with like 15, 20 minutes, because it goes by super quick, it took a while to get there, because before it was like, I worked from five minutes to 10, to 15, to 20. I just feel like, just ready to go. I'm just literally, I bullet train out of my door. Awesome. And get to the gym and go to work, and so it feels really nice.
2: So you're a CPA, mm-hmm. um, and f- not a lot of people in this room may know this, but you worked for Deloitte before you were yes. in uh, real estate. So for those of you that don't know, Deloitte corporate accounting, it is a grind. A lot of people oh, get yeah. hired out of college, and you're working eighty billable hours. So that's not eighty hours it's a not week. No travel time. Right, no travel time. I mean, this is billable client hours in their heavy season. So. What did you learn as an accountant that helped you operate your business and then we'll talk about your clients but your business what are some best practices coming from the
3: accounting background that have helped you be a a rockstar realtor i think uh, paying attention to the details you know i've heard from around the room a couple people have 150 transactions a year 200 250 Um, for myself keeping track of the details for our buyers and sellers are very important for example for sellers um, before we put a house on the market they get a calendar with like day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, what we're doing on a marketing standpoint so they know exactly what we're doing. You know, there's not kind of like, it's, it's very transparent. Uh, for buyers, they get schedules. Um, as soon as we go into escrow, they start getting schedules, schedules for my team on every week about this is what to expect in the next week, if you have any questions. um, All documents we put in through Google Docs with our clients, so they know what's due, when it's due, and when things are done, they're being checkmarked. So I think paying attention to details, even after an open house, leaving a nice bouquet of flowers with a handwritten note, just thanking them for allowing you to do an open, you know, take their home away from them for the next, for three hours, is, that goes a very, very long way. And that's something that my clients really like. Because especially if they're a first-time home buyer or they haven't sold a home in 20 or 30 years, they really like all the details. Because it is a very daunting experience for a lot of people.
2: I love the idea of bringing up specifically the marketing plan. And that's something we've implemented within our own company. We've always had it in our presentations, whether they be part of a CMA or a listing proposal and what ends up happening is we all get so used to the way that we practice our own business we forget that it may be our clients first time in 20 years or in 30 years or ever you know if they're a first-time buyer or seller so what we have found is that most of the issues that you have with clients is frustration because they're not aware of what you're doing right instead
3: of the expectation which I think is very important and that way they know what to expect by Wednesday by Thursday by Friday there's no fear of Did I I sign that? When is this due? They know exactly what's going on.
2: One of the things I coach my team to think about too is justify your existence. When you've you've been hired by someone, justify your existence in their lives. And sometimes it's just, here's what I've done this week. We don't have your house under contract or we don't have your property under contract yet, but here's what's going on behind the curtain. We want to just make sure that you know what's happening. Because they're always wondering. They're looking and they, they want updates. Uh, especially the really detail-oriented clients. So how did these lessons about being a CPA, working for Deloitte, translate to benefit your wealthy clients? I mean, you're working with people that have a lot of money, they've had a lot of success, whether it be their talents or their ability to grow businesses. So how does that benefit your wealthy clients?
3: So for my wealthy clients, even though they have their own team of financial advisors, CPAs, business managers, attorneys, having the background of being able to work with numbers and pull up charts, if it was, they are buying a triplex or a fourplex or an investment property for their sons, I can run the numbers of what, you know, I can forecast things. This is what things will look like a year from now, three years from now, five years from now, after your property tax shelter, you're on this uh, property tax bracket, this is what things will look like after taxes. So things like that um, really gave me an edge for myself as a business owner and also for my clients, because that's something that they felt that they're like oh well you're a CPA it's not an easy test you you probably have a brain up there which really kind of helped me get along especially in the competition for Beverly Hills cuz it's it's very it's fierce
2: it's a differentiator though i yeah. mean i think there's a lot of really flashy good looking people in the industry there is. a lot of people have got a lot of experience that may be older and more experienced than you so that It's a great differentiator and i wish we could all have it but i think it's really neat to be able to talk to your clients on a business level and be able to say look this is what i'm seeing that i need you to do and each one of you can get advanced classes in in accounting or just understand how the ratios of your own business work i think that's one of the things that i've thought about having gotten a degree in finance and er having heard some advanced classes after college you just think about the fact that most of life has to do with being in ratio as it relates to your income and your expenses. And we're constantly looking at that when we sell investment properties. Is this in check, is this expense category within the acceptable amount of ratios that we usually see? And if it's not, you have to call it into question, right? And your clients will go, oh yeah, there's this issue, or yeah, I spent a little bit more this year on this particular category and here's why. And so it it, it adds value to them because you're now being a part of that conversation with them, it's great. All right, so let's talk about the fun stuff your first really high profile client. Now we can't name any names, but let's talk about how, how you landed that client and kind of uh-huh. what the circumstances were on, on this, this Big Mac Daddy house you might have sold.
3: So that came through a business manager. So out in Los Angeles, and I'm pretty sure all the larger metropolitan areas, families with wealth, celebrities or directors, people in entertainment, non-entertain, non-entertainment, people with a lot of wealth have business managers. And so these business managers, they pay the bills. They're the ones in direct communication with the attorneys, with their insurance people, with their CPAs. And so I started to really, about two and a half, three years ago, I felt, okay, most business managers are CPAs. I'm a CPA, I need to use this to my advantage. And so there was one business manager that I had in mind that I just felt, okay, I need to build a relationship with this man. He's a little bit older than I am, probably different interests, but I'm pretty sure we can find a middle ground. So I took him out to lunch. It took me four months to get that lunch. He kept canceling. I wasn't gonna give up. And after the lunch, then I, I, there was a book that I was reading that I I really loved and I sent him a book. And then I had a client party. I invited him to my client party. And then there was a gala for one of the fundraisers uh, that I'm part of and I invited him to that. So after two years of probably connecting with him, probably about 24 times, I finally got that big client from him. So it took a lot of time and a lot of patience. And because I did so well in that transaction, then he started uh, introducing me to other business managers, to other people on his team. He really needed to feel how it was to work with the Ivan Estrada brand, um, of not being salesy, of being seen more as a fiduciary, especially for a business manager, if something goes wrong, if I make a mistake, that business manager's job could be on the line. So um, that's how I pretty much landed my first deal was just a lot of patience and just literally like just taking this guy on dates pretty much <laughs> for two years, he's expensive. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, and one of the things I wanna just hone in on for just a second before we pass that thought is that, you know, so much of life is persistence, right? Yeah. But then the other part of this, too, is we've got, um, we've got this ability to keep trying. And you know what? You don't fail until you say that it's not going to happen exactly. anymore. And you found that connector. You found that influencer. And it's blossomed into a, a lot of different relationships. And I think that that's really, really cool. Um, so now, what type of houses are these that you're selling? Because I know that there are folks in this room that are selling... In, in, in an area where the median house is $250,000. So what does it look like uh, in lifestyle of the rich and famous here?
3: So we, as a team, we, we do everything. I, mean, I I never want to just segment myself just luxury market. Like, for example, right now in Beverly Hills, things, anything over $10 million is just not selling anymore. And there's these massive homes that are $50 million, $100 million, $150 million. They're going nowhere. And so a lot of agents in my office who just dealt with the luxury high end, they haven't sold anything all year. And so I, I, from the beginning, I always wanted to make myself accessible to any type of market. Um, I think in the question was my biggest sale, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so biggest so, sale or coolest house. Yeah, so it was $29 million and it was, all, it was a coincidence of life. It happened about five years ago. Um, I had a UBS uh, account manager call me, And say, I went on your website and I saw that you have this listing. And it wasn't my listing, it was through the IDX. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Like, (laughs) When would you like to see it? (laughs) This was five years ago. I was still like two years in the game. And I was like, oh, my God, this would be really cool. So I started going into my head. I'm like, that would be so awesome if she bought this house. And so I showed up in my nice suit and just kind of, you know, I showed her the house. And I kind of felt, you know, most people in my brokerage were asking, are you sure she's real? And I was like, I don't know, but I have nothing to lose. Long story short, in three weeks we were in escrow, and in six weeks we were closed. And that came at a point in my life when I was actually working as a server to get by, because it was the the downturn of the market. And literally, it was that one transaction that literally changed my life. And it was all by accident. I don't know if that's just something, I mean, I want to think it kind of just, you know, someone's up there and was listening, I'm like, I hate this waiting job. Um, but, you know, it, just, it, it kind of just came at the right point in time, and that opened other opportunities for me. And it was $29 million. it was a five-bedroom, five-bath house, 20,000 square feet in Beverly Park and Beverly Hills, and very chate- uh, it was a chateau in style, and it was, uh, it was a Saudi, So there and aren't... I never met the Saudi. I never met the owner. That's crazy.
2: So there aren't just starving artists and starving actors or starving realtors too. Oh yeah, They're waiting tables, Tons. waiting for their next listing, right? It's, it's
3: kind of like the entertainment industry back <laughs> home. Like,
2: so yeah. I, I think that it's really important to discuss that the deals that you work on. You've already mentioned this, but you've got managers and you've got agents and you've got assistant one and assistant two and assistant three and the runner and all these different people. So what does it take to navigate a real estate transaction with so many different decision makers and so many different people that are really
3: surrounding the the talent if you're working with a celebrity? It's very difficult, especially at the beginning. Uh, So some people have their financial advisor, their CPA, their life insurance person, their home insurance person, if they're taking a loan, the lender, uh, the financial, I think I already mentioned financial advisor. Um, And the business manager. So you have all these people that you have to pretty much have to continue to keep in the loop during the whole transaction. And so the first transaction for me was pretty daunting, just because it was so many points of contact. And I'm just used to either it's the buyer or the seller, not a whole team of seven to 10 people. Um, And so for me, I think the most important thing was setting expectation with everybody, because some people might, you know, the insurance person might have a general idea or opinion about the value of the home, and then you have the CPA saying, no, this is too much money. It's, not, it's going to have a negative tax implication on him, and then you have the business manager saying yes. So for me, it was just kind of setting expectation with everybody and having a weekly meeting. So every Monday, we would have a meeting, all of us together, through a conference call, just to kind of let them know what to expect. Who needs to know about this? Does everyone need to be CC'd? Sometimes there's just one point of contact, and that's all that needs to be done. But it was very important for me to understand that, because especially with egos, in LA there's a lot of egos. If one person is left out of an email, that could be the end of it. And so I had to be very, very careful. And now, I mean, it's just kind of very second nature. Um, you know, again, that meeting and setting expectation, who needs to know what, by what time, who's responsible for what, what do you want, what, what are you expecting from me? And I think that's, uh, I think the biggest thing that I've kind of taken from that of working with a team of so many people. Some people might say yes, some people might say no. I mean, I've had the best deals, and then the worst deals where the one attorney just, you know, ruins the whole deal, which is based on his personal experience or opinion.
2: So I see, I, I see a lot of
3: communication
2: that you have to do there. Tons. You've built a team and you talked about that in our podcast, but maybe just identify the different people that are on your team that help you succeed. Because the idea of going through LA traffic and congestion right. to go actually to different meetings and stuff, you're doing a lot of conference calls, you've got teammates that are doing open houses for you, but then you've got the immediate follow back. Uh, follow up with the clients. So let's just kind of deconstruct your team a little bit okay. and kind of identify who, who's
3: on your team and how they help you. So I am the lead listing agent, but I still work with buyers depending on where they come from. Like if it's a, a referral through a business manager, it always has to come to me, even if it's just a million dollars. I have to do it. Um, I have an assistant who pretty much assists, I know, it sounds stupid, doesn't it? <laughs> <manage. laughs> Oh my God! A million dollars. Sorry, in L.A. I mean the average. Eighteen thousand dollars. Where is that? (laughs) Uh, Wait, where was I? (laughs) Your team. Who's on your team? team. So I'm the lead listing agent, uh, and I have two buyers agents who work with all the buyers. Um, I have an assistant who pretty much will assist me in anything that needs to be done. From, you know, if someone needs a house open, keys need to be delivered, things need to be installed, house sign or whatnot. Um, I have a marketing coordinator now who does all of our marketing, social media, videos, takes, coordinates all the videos. Um, I have a transaction coordinator, so she does all of the paperwork. I just review the contracts from writing the contracts to certain negotiation aspects of it. She will take care of it. She's a licensed real estate agent, and she's been for 20 years, so she does all of the paperwork. Um, and then, yeah, that's pretty much it.
2: All right, so that's the team now. If there's a solo agent here, someone that's a lone ranger, who is the first person you hired? An
3: assistant, an assistant. Because I think the assistant, my, my pipeline was always doing this, because I was doing everything. I didn't want a transaction coordinator. I didn't want to do any, I wanted to do all the work myself. And so, having that assistant opened up the time so that i can actually go prospect where i can go visit past clients and see how they're doing see how they've decorated have these breakfasts or lunch or dinners with attorneys or or cpas to generate more business or relationships so having that in in place kind of started elevating my business so i was actually instead of doing this then it just kind of slowly started doing this so i think an assistant is a must and i i was told by my business coach that once you start generating two or three, well, I think it's different in each market, but in my market, it's like once you start doing three to four sales, then it's time for an assistant, a month, month. month.
2: yeah. All right, so last two questions. You work with a lot of wealthy folks. I work with a lot of investors that have built businesses and I find that they are um, magnets for success, right? They've kind of figured this out and they're willing to impart wisdom. So what's the best piece of advice that one of your clients has given to
3: you? I think the biggest piece of advice that I got from one of my, I think, biggest clients was, thanks for treating me like a normal human being. I think a lot of these people are just, oh, you're so amazing, you're so great, that's all they hear. I'm, I, I feel un- uncomfortable, I'm not an ass kisser, I I've never, I've never have, and I just don't, I don't like the feeling of just, you know, I work for you, it was, we work together, we're working together as a team, and I think that was probably one of the biggest takeaways that I got. From a client who's just you know they're just used to hearing how awesome they are, and I was here to help them in their real estate transaction and journey, but not to tell them how amazing they are or how much I love their music. They don't want they don't want to hear that. They just want you to do what you're there to do. They don't need another fan, no, another no, handler, they don't. another another
2: friend. They want someone who's going to be their advisor, right. their Yeah, guide. and
3: someone that they can trust along the way.
2: Absolutely. So last question. Uh, one of our earlier presenters, James, talked about vision. I think vision is very important for entrepreneurs, for people who are setting the tone for their team. So what, and this is a Jim Collins ism, but a BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal. What are two things that you've got in your, as you're looking out
3: the windshield here over the next three to five years that are important for you? I think the continuation of building my team is very important for me. I have always been a networker. Uh, That's something that USC really instilled in us. And I thought, well, I've been doing a lot of networking locally here in, in the area, meaning a lot of you know attorneys and whatnot, people divorce attorneys, which are great for business. But I thought I, I need to really start expanding this and start going outward. So then I started going to New York very often. I started going to Miami, I started going to Aspen, down to San Diego, up to San Francisco, and I realized I last year I got thirty to 40 Thirty-five percent of my business came from outside referrals from other agents in other parts of, of town. That you know, if they have a beautiful house in LA, they probably have one in New York, or you know, it, uh, a lodge in Aspen, or a condo in Miami. So I started realizing, wait, I can actually double you know my my uh, referral business. And most of the referrals that I've been getting have been three million, five million, six million. And so now I'm taking it to the next level. I just got back from Hong Kong. I'm going to London in a couple days. Um, and so just really expanding my team so that I can go out and you know, make these relationships. And then when, when I'm there, something that I've been, that's been very valuable for me is like meeting a, an attorney in New York and an attorney in LA and Miami is connecting them. And they see you as that connector, which for me has been incredibly valuable. And so for the local realtor,
2: that's, I mean, you have a global business. But you can, you can absolutely do that with some of the people that you're working with in the insurance industry. Oh, absolutely. Or the roofers that you may work with. They all know far more people yeah. than you do individually, and you can connect those different people. And we've found great success by putting our clients in the room together with each other, and then they're celebrating us without us having to... Client to, parties, those are huge for us. Yeah. So I, I think that there's some, there's some practical wisdom in there. Even though you may not be in L.A., and you're not flying... I mean, you're going to London here in a couple of weeks, and... Spain and and so I think that you can really take that down and just say look, who can I connect with that's going to be an influencer that's going to make that sale to that one person, then they're going to become a raving fan that will give you several different referrals. So, So I think that that's a big key and I love the fact that you've identified the percentage of your referrals. I think that's a practical takeaway for everybody. Make sure that you're trying to figure that out last year. Okay, where did my repeat business come from? Where did my referral business come from? And really start to figure out who those fans are of you yeah. and continue to treat them well.
3: Yeah, being able to track things, I think, is very important, like where your leads are coming from. What, who, who's sending you the most referrals? Because those are the people that you really want to you know, hold close. Um, and just, yeah. Ivan, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for sharing your,
2: your wisdom. Right, thank, you thank you for sharing your time. Thank you. I appreciate it.
3: Thank, thank you. Thank you.